You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Happy New Year and Blessed Epiphany. I'm Dan Clare, one of the pastors here. Uh, for those I haven't met, it's really good to be together. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. You should be able to find a Bible somewhere near you if you don't have one already. Please open up to Matthew chapter 2, right in the middle of the Bible. It's good to be together, the dawn of 2023. May God bless and encourage you in this new year, especially those of you who feel like you're not quite at home here, and you feel like an outsider in Washington. You might feel unsettled, wondering whether you should put down roots here or move on. Maybe you're lonely, wondering why you don't have closer relationships here. Or perhaps you feel unnoticed, unknown, or even unwelcome here. Like an alien who doesn't belong. So I've been praying about this message, about this passage, praying for us to be able to receive it. I've been especially praying for all who don't feel at home right now. And I have to say that my wife and I feel it too, even though we have lived here longer than we've lived in any other place, uh, almost a quarter of a century now here in Washington, um, still feel oftentimes more like exiles than like Washingtonians. And my kids have all been born here at Georgetown Hospital, and yet they also have grown up here, oftentimes feel this not at homeless too. But when we do go back to those places where we used to live, find something very curious. It's a different place, different people, we're different. We don't feel at home there either. So we find that we no longer belong. And that feeling of being in exile just lingers and sits um, very uncomfortably with us so often. I don't know if you can relate, it's certainly been our experience over the years. I wonder why so many of us feel this way, at least in part, of course, it's due to the time that we're living, this uh, time in which every part of our lives seems to scatter us. You know, the way that we do housing, the way that we do food, the way that we do work, the way that we do entertainment, the way that we do education, everything seems to be scattering us apart rather than pulling us together. So in part, this is, a, this is uh, a consequence of living as we do in this modern era. But there is another factor for those who are Christians. There's something else going on as well. Powerful spiritual forces are at work behind the scenes to isolate Christian believers even further. So, to the degree that you have chosen to align yourself with Jesus, you are going to feel like an exile wherever you go in the midst of the kingdoms of this earth. It will be like this as long as you align yourself with Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. We have from the scriptures today good news. Good news. God put on human flesh 
and came to dwell among the exiles. As a result, Jesus gets us. He really does. Jesus welcomes us. And Jesus will deliver us from exile. No one knows and loves us like Jesus does. And if you belong to him, you can find belonging in him. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. We, we do turn to you, Lord, and ask for your spirit to be at work amongst us now as we, as we consider what you're saying to us through your word. Please give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and then empower us as we leave this place to, to live faithfully according to what you have taught us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at Matthew 2, if you haven't opened it there yet, please do so. And here are the key points I hope to make if you look at this passage. Again, Jesus gets us. Jesus welcomes us. Jesus will deliver us from exile. And if you, if you belong to him, you will find belonging in and through him. So first of all, Jesus gets us. Feeling unwelcome is nothing new, as we've seen in recent weeks. We've been going through the Christmas story. It's, a, it's very much a part of the story of Christmas, isn't it? Mary and Joseph, forced migration from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They are forced to go back home to Bethlehem, where Joseph's, Joseph's family is from. But when they get there, they are not really welcome there. There's no place for them to stay except amongst the cattle. No air mattress in the guest bedroom, nothing like that. They are definitely displaced. And it's into this displacement Jesus is born, and it only gets worse, much worse, when the exile, when the, uh, when the Magi come. Take a look at the first three verses of Matthew chapter 2. Pay special attention to Matthew's um, uh, expert repetition of the word king. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and had come to worship him. But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Matthew is such an expert storyteller, you know, and the way that he does this, repeating the word king, draws our attention really to the inevitable exile that Jesus is going to have to experience. Matthew doesn't have to spell it out for us any further. He knows that we know that when Herod knows a rival king has been born, it is going to force that rival king, namely Jesus, to either flee or capitulate or die. Those will be the options. And Jesus, as, as we read, will have to run for his life. The fact that Paranoid, power-hungry Herod learns of Jesus' birth through the arrival of a foreign delegation makes the situation, of course, all the more urgent. It's not like you read in the children's books. It's not like in a lot of the cartoons. It's not three old guys 
on three camels showing up. We're talking about a massive delegation, probably hundreds of people with a large security detail in order to protect this treasure that's come all this way from Babylon. And so when this delegation arrives, um, it would have gotten everyone's attention. And note what they said when they arrived in Jerusalem. We saw his star when it rose. So we've come to worship him. Imagine paranoid, power-hungry Herod responding to this. Don't you wish you could have seen his face when he first heard that? Wait, you're telling me he has a star? I'm working on it for you. I think it's not going to be too much money to get you a star, baby. <laughs> this delegation came to Jerusalem not to worship Herod, but to worship a different king with his own star. Jesus' situation was very urgent indeed, wasn't it? To survive, he and his family would have to make this exodus. They'd have to flee and seek refuge outside of the borders of Herod's kingdom. Jesus gets us. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be in exile. So if you've ever felt like you're in exile, if you've ever felt unwelcome, ever feel or wonder whether this is really home, you're in good company. Jesus was born into exile, and it followed him wherever he went. And if we had been reading the story from the very beginning, all of the Old Testament coming up to this passage, we would know that it really had to be this way because basically every major character in the Old Testament story also had to endure exile as well. You start with Adam and Eve who, because of their rebellion against God, are forced out of the garden, exiled from paradise. Noah and his family who have to make this passage through the waters, displaced by the flood. Abraham and Sarah, who leave their home in Mesopotamia and make this journey to the promised land. Jacob and his family were forced to leave the promised land and find refuge in Egypt because of famine. Moses and all of Israel, enslaved under Pharaoh, who make an exodus out of Egypt, back to the promised land. King David, exiled among the, Phil the Philistines in order to escape a very Herod-like madman named Saul, and eventually all Israel exiled back to Mesopotamia because of their apostasy and idolatry. If you feel like an exile, sometimes you're in very good company, because pretty much everybody in the Bible did also. And when we come to Jesus, of course Jesus had to experience this too, right? Of course it has to be a part of his story. As the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came to be the new Adam. He came to be the new Moses, the new David, he came to do it over again and to do it right. Of course, he experienced exile. He had to go through it in order to redeem us and all the people of God. 
Now, he didn't really have to do it, right? He, he didn't have to go through it. He could have kept his distance from all this chaos, from all the difficulty and pain and suffering, but love doesn't sit on the sidelines, does it? Love doesn't remain aloof. Love put on human flesh and joined us in exile. Paul says in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself of his glory in heaven. He took on the form of a servant in order to dwell among us and rescue us. Jesus really does know what it's like to be in exile. He really knows what it's like to be misunderstood, to be unwelcome, to be unwanted. Jesus gets us. He really does. Secondly, not only does Jesus get us, he also welcomes us. As I said at the beginning, there are unseen dark forces at work in this world, and if you are a Christian, these forces are actively trying to isolate and neutralize you just as they were at the time of Jesus. Listen again to the wicked scheming of King Herod, verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I may too come and worship him. Isn't that sweet of Herod? What a saint. Thankfully, these are wise men, right? They're, they're going to figure it out, and they're not going to re re reveal Jesus' location uh, despite Herod's pious posturing. Herod knew his days were numbered, right? So he worked hard to eliminate every potential arrival. And there were dark forces behind that driving his madness. It's the same today because Christians pose a threat to the current regime. The same unseen dark forces behind Herod's murderous ambitions continue to oppose and try to eliminate Jesus' followers one way or another. One of the most difficult things about being a Christian today is the loneliness of it. All of those voices in our heads trying to pin that loneliness on us rather than on the dark forces that are behind it. You know what I'm talking about, I, I, I think. The voices say things like, you will always be alone. This is all about you. You're a loser, you're ugly, you're boring, you're awkward, you're unpopular, you're no fun, fill in the blank, it doesn't matter. It's all a smokescreen to hide what's really going on. And what's really going on, the real reason why you feel alone, is because you're a Christian. And as a Christian, you have given your allegiance, your heart, your life, to a different king. A king whose kingdom is not of this world, but whose kingdom is nevertheless invading this world, and taking possession of this world, and all of the principalities and powers of this world are fighting to the death to stop. King Jesus has laid claim on this city as his property forever. 
but the principalities and powers entrenched against him would rather die fighting than give him the keys. And these forces will do everything they can to isolate and neutralize you. They may try to do it through compartmentalization. This is a very common tactic. They trick you into living a double life. They leave you alone on Sundays. You can do your holy thing, check the box, just so long as you go with the flow and don't ruffle any feathers the rest of the week. They're playing the long game. They're going to wear you down, wear down your allegiance to Jesus under the ever-increasing burden of hypocrisy. And evidently, this is a very effective strategy as we learn year after year the polls coming from groups like Barna and Gallup that tell us that evangelical Christians are, are just as immoral and just as unkind as unbelieving neighbors. In addition to compartmentalization, these principalities and powers may also try to neutralize you through assimilation, particularly if they can fool you into baptizing some wicked practice in the name of Jesus. For centuries in our country, <clears throat> this has been a tactic for fooling American Christians into supporting slavery, segregation, white supremacy, at times as necessary evils, at other times as morally neutral, and most egregiously sometimes as biblical mandates, right? The result has been assimilation. The church, an embassy of Christ's kingdom, becomes assimilated into the forces of the enemy, an enemy outpost instead. And I'm heartbroken and ashamed. Even now, in 2023, white evangelicals are still the most likely people to object to neighbors of another race. What a tragedy. And now, because the principalities and powers have found assimilation to be a very effective tactic, they use the same tactic with other things, with other immoral and wicked things, trying to baptize sexual immorality, greed, infanticide, euthanasia, things like that. All manner of predatory practices being brought into Christian ethics as things that Jesus would approve of and would actually have us do. It worked before. They're trying it again. In any case, whether through compartmentalization, through assimilation, or some other technique, the invitation of these dark forces is always the same, and the invitation is this, you don't have to be in exile any longer. You don't have to feel alone any longer. You're a loser now, but if you'll just join with us, you'll have community, you'll belong. And again, these, these forces aren't passive, they are always at work trying to isolate us feeding us this banquet of lies to explain why we're so alone, and it's really their active opposition that was to blame. In the prologue to John's Gospel, uh, John writes that when Jesus came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, 
to those who believed in his name, he welcomed them, and he continues to welcome them. He gives those who believe him, who receive and believe in his name, the right to belong to his family. The right to belong to him. And that's what the Magi did on their on the first epiphany, if you look at verses 9 and 10, they went to Jesus. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they first saw the star, the Magi set out on an exodus through the wilderness, from Persia to the Promised Land. But after that long journey, they, they arrived to this mess with Herod, Jerusalem, no king there for them to worship. They're still exiles without a home. But then they go out again and they see the star. They see the star, once again, this time like the glory cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness, like pillar of fire and smoke, and it guides them those six miles south to Bethlehem, and it comes to rest right over a little tabernacle filled with animals, and the Ark of the Covenant in the middle, a little manger, no longer stone tablets holding the Word of God, but now the living Word, the Word made flesh. And they come to worship him. And, and look at the superlatives that Matthew piles on here. Exceedingly, with great joy, they are ecstatic because they have found the light that will lead them to the light of Christ. They come in and they worship the Word made flesh. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They showered him with treasures, they worshipped him, knowing that their exile had come to an end. The Word made flesh welcomed them. Gentiles from Babylon, once the enemies of the people of God, now they were the first fruits of the one holy Catholic apostolic church of Jews and Gentiles of every tribe and tongue and nation. This is where it begins. That's why the Feast of Epiphany was the first and the great feast of the early church before any others. And why it was so important, because it was all about the ingathering of the nations. It was something that everybody could celebrate because most of the early church was not Jewish. It was a celebration of the promise that no matter who you are, where you come from, if you bow before Jesus, giving him all you are, all you have, he won't turn you away. You'll no longer be in exile. You'll be a part of his family, joining with the Lord Jesus, with all the saints who've gone before us, with all the people all around the world today who believe in him. If you're a Christian, you are not alone, because Jesus welcomes you. Got to talk about T.S. Eliot, The Journey of the Magi, poem. Always talk about it this time of year. In this little poem, he imagines the musings of one of the Magi years later, looking back on the experience. At the end of the poem, Eliot writes, 
We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here, in, an, in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. No longer at home here, in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. Like the Magi, if you've given your life to Jesus, you will no longer be at ease among the alien people of this city, clutching their gods of power, popularity, pleasure, wealth, etc. But you will have a home with Jesus because he welcomes you. Finally, last point, Jesus will deliver us from exile. Not only does he get us, not only does he welcome us, but Jesus will also deliver us. You know, it won't always be this way in living as we do in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. The principalities and powers won't always try to isolate and neutralize us. The decisive battle has already been won by Jesus. He's the new Adam, the new Moses, the new David, who did it, who got it done, the righteous one. He went into exile for us, even at the point of death on the cross. In the lead up to the cross, dark forces were at work. They isolated the disciples, turned them, Compartmentalization, especially in Judas's life, led him to betray Jesus. There were also all of these Jewish leaders who should have been for Jesus, but they were assimilated into the cause of the Romans. Pharisees, priests, all of the rulers of Jerusalem, they're fooled into believing that they're doing the right thing by handing Jesus over to be crucified. And the Romans are all too happy to have him and nail him to a cross and put him up in front of everybody saying, this is what we do to all of those who oppose the regime of Rome. This is what happens if you don't join us. So there on Calvary, Jesus experienced total exile for us. He cried out in anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? To deliver us from exile. To give us the eternal security of belonging to the people of God. On Good Friday, Jesus won this decisive battle over exile. But until Christ comes again, there's still going to be struggle. Skirmishes will continue. The dark forces of death will not go down without a fight. There will continue to be aftershocks of exile among God's people, just like there was suffering in Bethlehem after the birth of Jesus. Look once again, verse 16. And Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. It's a very jarring thing to read, isn't it? In the midst of this happy story of Epiphany, the Christmas story, here's this terrible tragedy that occurs in Bethlehem. If you want to understand what's going on, we have to go back to Exodus, 
Back to another very similar story when another paranoid and power-hungry king ordered the infanticide of his subjects. Pharaoh of Egypt, in fear, decreed that all the male Hebrew babies should be drowned in the Nile, but God intervened to deliver one baby, Moses, passing not under the waters, but passing over the waters in a little ark made for one. Moses saved to be a savior some 80 years before he would lead Israel out of bondage in Egypt. 80 years before. Why 80 years of waiting for a savior? 80 years, Israel would continue to suffer all of the hardships of a madman throwing babies in the river, oppressing the people of God. But also for 80 years, Israel would continue to grow exponentially from a family into a nation. It had to be this way if they were eventually going to enter the promised land and become stewards of it. Very similar thing happens in Bethlehem after the departure of the Magi. Paranoid and power-hungry Herod orders this infanticide. All the male babies in Bethlehem and the region, scholars think it could have been as many as 20 or 30 children who died as a result. But not Jesus. He escapes, right? An angel comes in the middle of the night, wakes Joseph, and then the holy family is roused, and they pass over. They pass over water and wilderness and make their way to Egypt of all places. But many others do not escape in Bethlehem. And for years, the hardship continues in Israel. People continue to suffer. People are still enslaved by Herod, mad, crazy Herod, with all of his uh, building projects, just like Pharaoh, more bricks without straw. Decades go by with no change, except for this one little thing that happens. A tiny mustard seed gets planted in Israel. Jesus emerges from the waters of the Jordan River, and he starts talking to these fellows, saying, Come, follow me. And as they go, they begin to behold the kingdom of God. They struggle. Jesus says on the road, uh, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. They struggle, they fall away, but after his death and resurrection, he breathes his spirit upon them, and the kingdom of God begins to grow and grow and grow. Before his crucifixion on the Mount of Olives, Jesus looked out across at the temple and he said, You see that? You see it in its glory. Not one stone will be left upon another. Yet for decades after Pentecost, it still stands. And for decades, the Christians suffer. Another madman, Saul, is running around putting Christians in jail, putting Christians to death. But the Spirit is at work. The Spirit is at work. Even Saul is converted and becomes a member of the church, and this little church continues to grow. By the time the temple falls, 70 AD, 
there are potentially hundreds of thousands of Christians, Jews and Gentiles. There's no longer a need for a temple because wherever two or three are gathered in his name, anywhere and everywhere, God is present. Just like that little cave with the, the ark, with the word of God, the living word of God present there, something new was popping up all over the world as Jesus was coming to dwell among us and to wipe our exile away forever. Listen, it is worth it to be here today. It is worth it to be here with the Lord and with his people. It's worth it to be in the city to be ambassadors for him. You are not alone. He gets us. He really does. He welcomes us into his family. He will deliver us from exile. And if you belong to him, you will find belonging in the church. Promise. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for life in Jesus. Thank you for the promise of the end of the exile and for the foretaste of it here. Thank you that darkness hides and flees and trembles at Jesus' voice. Protect us as we go out from this place. Let the light of Christ shine through us that wherever we go, Epiphany might be there with us. And we will give you all the honor and praise. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.